How do we engage with other cultures? How does the exchange of people address violent extremism? How can cities become players on the world stage? I'm Madison Jones, and this is the Public Diplocast. Sponsored by the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, this is Episode 3 on Countering Violent Extremism and Engaging Communities. Today's episode explores all aspects of countering violent extremism and counterterrorism. While we often view terrorism from a policy issue, so much of it is centered in public diplomacy themes. Today, we're exploring how we can leverage private sector resources in the digital terrorism fight, how we can encourage interfaith dialogue to understand its role in violence and peace, how communities are working to address issues that lead to radicalization, and how information sharing has dramatically changed how we prevent acts of terror. Here, to help me dissect these topics is Dr. Errol Southers. Dr. Errol Southers is the director of the Safe Communities Institute and Homegrown Violent Extremism Studies at the University of Southern California, Seoul Price School of Public Policy. Dr. Southers also serves as the director of international programs of the Department of Homeland Security National Center for Risk and Economic Analysis of Terrorism Events. Previously, he also served as California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's Deputy Director in the California Office of Homeland Security, Chief of Homeland Security and Intelligence for the Los Angeles World Airport Police Department, and President Barack Obama's first nominee for Assistant Secretary of the Transportation Security Administration. Dr. Southers is the author of Homegrown Violent Extremism, he is internationally renowned, and I am honored to have him here. Thank you for being here, Dr. Southers. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So in this podcast, we discuss various topics related to public diplomacy. So my first question for you is, why is countering violent extremism and counterterrorism not just a policy issue, but actually a public diplomacy issue as well? When I think of public diplomacy, I usually think more broadly in terms of the international scope. So in that regard, usually we're talking about disseminating information. Um, negatively, we're talking about disseminating propaganda. So it's very much a public diplomacy issue because the threats that we face and some of the challenges we face are because of our adversary's ability to disseminate information quite broadly and quite effectively. So it is more than just a policy issue. It really is a combination of both. In your class on Homeland Security and Public Policy, which I took, uh, you mentioned that one of your one of the main issues that the U.S. faced in terms of counterterrorism in the past was lack of information sharing and the lack of desire to share information between agencies. So how should the U.S. be collaborating with state and local partners in order to share intelligence? Well, let me go back before I answer that. And first, I want to thank you for taking my class and for doing well. Um, historically, uh, let me just say it. We, we are a culture of successful people in this country. We compete. And when you look at the law enforcement and counterterrorism domain, they are no different than anything else. So for many decades, we competed for resources, we competed for funding, we competed for attention, uh, for success. And unfortunately, 9-11 was the culmination of decades of doing that. What has happened since then, most importantly on the state, local, and federal level, is we've developed joint terrorism task forces, if we talk about terrorism specifically. Uh, you will walk into those what we call fusion centers, which are located throughout the United States. In those centers, you'll see state, local, federal law enforcement, fire, emergency responders who didn't used to work together, not just working together, but sharing information, collecting 
information to determine if it's actionable intelligence and disseminating that information to the appropriate agencies for action. We do that quite well. It's very seamless. And the reason you've seen the lack of attacks in this country, the reason you've seen the increase in thwarted attacks is twofold. Number one, we have an engaged public that's reporting more often in what we call SARS, suspicious activity reports. And we have fusion centers that can get that information, analyze it quickly and act on it. Was that change a gradual change after 9-11? How fast did did these agencies realize that they needed to do information sharing? We can actually uh, commend New York Police Department for being first, New York Police Department and the New York Division of the FBI for doing that. It was initially an NYPD, uh, NYFBI collaboration, and then it spread across the country. Uh, It happened rather quickly because in the 9-11 commission report, it was the number one item cited for our vulnerabilities, our country's vulnerability at the time was the fact that we weren't able to share, that we didn't work together, and unfortunately we were attacked. You wrote an op-ed in the LA Times where you discussed the need for a mosaic of engagement in which communities must identify factors that endanger public safety and forge consensus that reducing violent extremism is the desired byproduct of a safe community. You mentioned the importance of empowering local communities, encouraging dialogue, identifying local concerns. So can you give us some examples of ways in which cities can create a mosaic of engagement? Well, I'll go back to the actual uh, mosaic of engagement, which I developed. And one of the things we did very poorly in the 80s and 90s with some of the programs that we had, particularly on the local level with our COPS programs, is quite often we dictated to the community what we thought the public safety remedy should be without asking them, what challenges do you have? What are your biggest concerns? Asking them for input. This mosaic of engagement is an outgrowth of some of the failures I've seen around the world, most notably, although it's been fixed, was the Prevent Program in the UK, where they did the same thing, where they decided that the Muslim community was the at-risk community and went in there with a program without their input, and they had to revise it some eight years later to fix it. What I see as a successful mosaic of engagement here is doing just that, sitting with the community as an equal partner and listening. Um, I work in a number of communities in the United States, and even though some of those communities are, let's just say, no pun intended, target rich for the recruitment and radicalization of extremist organizations, their number one challenge is usually not that. It's usually something like gang violence or bullying in school. If you don't know that and you're going in with a hammer, everything becomes a nail. And that's a problem. So the pushback we've seen in a number of communities in the United States with our, what we call CVE program or Countering Violent Extremism program was that we went in there trying to counter violent extremism, not asking people, what are your day-to-day concerns? So that's the big issue is first having them identify the concerns and then having them help you develop the responses to those issues in a way of prioritizing what you might wanna do. So we've seen some successful efforts now in a number of communities in the United States. They're owning these programs. What's really hard about it is sustaining them. They're usually grant-driven, and these communities are very, very intelligent and savvy about grants. They know when the funding runs out, their program may run out, and so I have seen that. But we're doing a lot better job now of engaging the community partner-to-partner instead of peer-to-partner, or I should say administrator-to-recipient in getting this done, And and I think we'll have to do a better job of that going forward. What types of partners are involved in this? Is the private sector involved in countering violent extremism? The private sector is very much involved in this, almost, um, I I would say, probably more private sector than public, uh, which certainly adds to the legitimacy of it. The the organizations that I work with 
are usually a community-based, sometimes mom-and-pop organizations, a lot of after-school programs, athletic programs, parenting programs, education. Those entities that function more in the after-school hours than during the school hours, um, the ones that function at night and on the weekends, and those are the ones that really make a difference when you're talking about violent extremism and those opportune times for young people to be susceptible to messaging and or recruiting efforts by extremist organizations. So maybe for some people who don't know, is this programming and this um, you know, community engagement a key differentiator in countering violent extremism versus counterterrorism? It's actually one and the same. I differentiate it this way. You know, terrorism, unfortunately, in the United States, we only charge people with terrorism when the individual is associated with a foreign ideology or organization. So I have been commonly saying lately, there's a big difference between a person doing something nefarious and screaming Heil Hitler and screaming Allah Akbar. They're going to be treated very differently. I think we should be treating them the same or not, or not at all. And so they are different. Moving forward, we do have to understand that homegrown violent extremism is no more than homegrown domestic terrorism. And they really should be treated that way. So, so that's our first issue. And to give you an illustration of how challenging this is, if you were to Google all of the federal agencies in the United States responsible for counterterrorism, none of them share a common definition. So we have an interesting starting point as a country if we're really going to address this. And that's part of the problem with regards to people looking at homegrown violent extremism and or terrorism. To me, they're one and the same. Going back briefly to your information sharing um, point, what about information sharing between countries? Is that something that wasn't being done previously? Is that something that's being done more now? Actually, it was being done previously and it's still being done. What's really interesting is since 9-11, we have local agencies that have offices and personnel stationed abroad. New York Police Department, LAPD, we have officers that are assigned to Paris, to London, to Tel Aviv. Um, they are our officers assigned in those countries that sit with counterparts, and when something happens, we'll know right away from our folks on the ground there what it is. What most people don't know is that when there's an act of terrorism anywhere in the world, the FBI is automatically on alert, and sometimes en route to find out were there any American victims or were there any American assets involved in the attack. And once we determine that, then we'll decide whether or not we become actively engaged in the investigation or not. One of our previous podcasts discussed the role of faith in public diplomacy. So I'm curious to hear from your perspective how you think faith plays a role in countering violent extremism and if we should be more open to interfaith dialogue to prevent some of these activities. That's a very good question. Um, so let me go to the emergency response domain before I go to the counterterrorism one. It's been somewhat proven that people, particularly in the United States, when given instruction from the government, if they believe anyone, they'll believe their faith leader. Whether they're Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, uh, they'll believe their faith leader. We had an effort here years ago at USC through our center at CREATE, which is the first DHS center of excellence in the country, and CREATE stands for Center for Risk and Economic Analysis of Terrorism Events. We were tasked with putting out information to first responders, namely FEMA, that if we had to make an announcement for a shelter in place or a mass evacuation of a city, we were going to give information to seven faith-based groups. We had the top seven. And to give the FEMA people instructions for how to work with, address, and properly speak to people from those different faiths. Because 
as you interact with people, it's very different sometimes to interact with a, an Orthodox, Jew, Orthodox Jewish woman than you would perhaps with a Muslim woman or someone who's Christian. We did that in a way that we've now got that information out there. And if we were to say there's going to be a tsunami or there's going to be a major hurricane, we can work through faith-based leaders to get that information out there. What we're finding now in the terrorism domain is that although we have racially motivated attacks, all other ideologically motivated attacks, what seems to be a stream more often than not is faith. Um, it could be Christianity, it could be Islam. Um, we understand that once we get the faith-based community on board, that helps us with a large swath of the population that might be targeted and or subject to recruitment or radicalization efforts by extremist organizations. So having a faith-based community on your team is a very, very huge asset for us. What could we be doing on the local level? I know there are organizations like Average Muhammad, and there's a lot of other great stuff being done here in LA with the entertainment industry. But what could be, we be doing on a more community level to understand other faiths more, to, to not see faith just through the lens of extremism, which I feel like we so often do when it comes to international relations? You know, your comment earlier about interfaith is, is, spot, is spot on. I think that we have a number of interfaith organizations in this city and around the country that are doing tremendous work, and no one ever hears about it. That's our biggest problem. We only talk about faith when there's a problem. Mm -hmm. We only talk about communities when there's a problem. Um, I work in several that they're doing fantastic work, but we don't highlight them. That's what we could be doing in the media space to make people understand we are working together, we are making progress, we are being successful. Highlight those organizations that are doing good work and let people know about it. So you wrote an interesting piece about parents who are faced with the terrible realization that their child has become radicalized. You reference a German counseling network for those who are radicalized or the loved ones of a radicalized person. Is this type of organization successful? Is this something that we could replicate here in the U.S.? You're speaking about Hyatt, and I visited them in Berlin a couple of years ago. The organization has become quite successful. What's really interesting and unique about them, you're talking about an organization that was largely developed to address returning foreign fighters from Iraq and Syria who were Islamists. What they've done now is broaden the scope of their services to include neo-Nazis and right-wing extremists. And they're being successful with those individuals that are defecting from those ideologies as well. We have tried to start a pilot program here in the United States. Uh, unfortunately, the first effort was unsuccessful. It was in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. I went to the trial of those four young men several years ago. They were, um, they were assessed by one of the evaluators, the creator of the program named Daniel Kohler. Daniel's in, Daniel is in Berlin. And unfortunately, they were not deemed eligible for the program. Since then, we do ha now have one individual who is, let's just say, being monitored and in a program like that. And so far, so good. Uh, it is something that we're going to have to look at. We can't arrest our way out of this problem. We have returning foreign fighters back to places like France, who's had more foreign fighters than any other European nation. Um, I met with a group uh, two weeks ago from Tajikistan, uh, returning foreign fighters, and lo and behold, Americans need to really brace themselves because we've had returning foreign fighters here and we will have more. So if we're talking about that issue and addressing those young people who are radicalized or, and, and become fighters, it is something that we're going to have to do going forward. We're going to have to look at programs like this. If we have parents that believe their children or their 
significant others or friends have been radicalized. We don't want people afraid to make that call. In Germany, what they've done is they've partnered this program with the government. So there's a continuum that they look at. If you're on the end of the spectrum where we can counsel you and your family and work with you to get you out of this, they do it. However, if you're on the end of the spectrum where you're subject to prosecution because of what you've been engaged in, you're going to be prosecuted and go to jail. So understanding that, when people make that call, it's that assessment that's going to determine where that individual is and how much they, how eligible they are for the services that could be afforded to them. Especially because parents aren't going to want to make the call if they know that their kid's going to be prosecuted. No, they're not. And we had a gentleman here in Northern California about a year ago who made that call. And unfortunately, his son was much further along the continuum than he thought. And he's now being prosecuted. Unfortunately, that same father said, you know, if I had known my son was going to be prosecuted, I wouldn't have called the FBI. We don't want people to say that. I cannot imagine what it would feel like to be a father of that young man to have to make that call. However, I've talked to other parents in this country who've made that call, who have said, even though their sons were prosecuted and incarcerated, at least he's alive. So it's a very interesting double-edged sword. We've got to make people comfortable with it because the alternative to that, as his father said to me, you only give me two choices, call the authorities and hope for the best, or don't call at all and hope my son doesn't do anything. And both are pretty stark, but I would hope that they would opt for the first one so we could at least attempt to offer them some resources. You work a lot with defectors from various terrorist organizations. Why is that so important? Why do we need to engage them in the dialogue? And why is this not something that really is being talked about? I was a gang officer for many years before I went to the FBI and worked counterterrorism. And I'll have to tell you, it's one thing for a police officer to say to a gang member or to a young man or woman, you shouldn't be a gangster. It's another thing for a former gang member to say, you shouldn't be a gangster. Well, terrorism is no different. It's a whole different message when I've got a former neo-Nazi telling people, this is not the road you want to go down, as opposed to someone like me who may, who's an academic in this area saying, this is not the road for you. So it's a very powerful message. In fact, I love your question because when I was in France three years ago, uh, I met a gentleman who was a returning foreign fighter, had gone to prison for several years in Lyon where he grew up and felt like he got a second chance and he wanted to help. And I talked to the French authorities there and I said, you've got a resource here. And his name is David. And they said, you know, we don't want to make a superstar out of him. We are not going to give him a platform. He's working. He's fine. Let's leave it. I returned to France about six months later and David had flyers for where he was speaking all over France. And I went to those same prosecutors and said, why the change of heart? They said, let me tell you something. When these guys come back from Syria and Iraq, we should give them a microphone and just let them have an audience and tell them what it's really like. So to your question about why we need them, they can tell people what it's really like. It's not like they believe when they watch the YouTube Rambo videos, as they call them, and they think they're going to go off and wear black ninja suits and have AK-47s and lead this life of glory. It's not like that at all. And they're very, very disappointed when they join those organizations and that happens to them. Same with uh, here at home when we're talking about neo-Nazis, skinheads, um, Antifa. Having formers come in and give that message to people is a much more powerful communication strategy. You make a, a good point about the reality being different than what you see online. And to that point, the changing technological landscape has totally shifted terrorism from you know a fight on the battlefield to a fight online. 
um, chat rooms are being used. There's apps like Telegram. I mean, it's pretty insane what's happening online right now. Um, so in your opinion, how are we doing? How's the U.S. doing in countering ISIS propaganda online? Are we using private sector resources like we should be doing with, you know, Silicon Valley? Are we using the latest technology? I think we are. And, and again, a very good question. When I sat in the trial in Minneapolis uh, a few years ago, and I listened to that young man testify about how they were communicating with each other, it was like a tutorial session in Encrypted Apps 101. It was absolutely amazing how much sophistication they had with the use of apps on their phone. We have now gone to that same extent, as you mentioned, using some of the Silicon Valley expertise. Google Ideas is funding, as you know, I work with Average Muhammad uh, in Minneapolis. They're funding his effort. How do I know it's being successful? We're getting cyber attacked by ISIS to the tune of dozens to hundreds of attacks per day. That means it's working. Wow. Uh, when we see that, we smile because we've got their attention and the message is out there. So we have made use of those resources. There are efforts now with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue in London, who's another partner of ours. They have an incredible effort now of counter-messaging, and they're probably one of the best in the world. We see the same counter-messaging efforts in France and Germany. Everyone is working on an international basis to see who's got the best practice, what seems to be something that works, and can we all mirror or copy that in our own home, homelands. If you were in charge of overseeing the counter-messaging, what would be the main point you would want to leave them with? Like, What is really important to impart on these people in terms of counter-messaging without it seem like, seeming like, you know, we're targeting a group of people? I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Well, the first thing I would do is take up my colleague, uh, Muhammad Amin, who organized and founded Average Muhammad. I take up his strategy of we need to be working with and messaging to people at the age that they're watching SpongeBob. That's the first thing, is the age of the recipient. You know, it's just like gang messaging in the United States. If you're talking to people about gang life in middle school, it's too late. So that's the first thing, is the, is the demographic. The other thing I would point to really is just the starkness of the future that you face when you join these organizations. And I get this from the formers that I talk to, the violence that they engage in with each other, the violence that they engage in with the people that they target, the alienation they have from their families and friends, the unlikelihood of being successful, quote unquote, in the United States in the way of a career path, and what it does for you for a future. So I think there's a huge component of elements that would need to be part of that message with regards to what happens when you go down that road. At the same time, for those of those who do go down that road, it's not the end of the road, and they can come out of it. And I know many of them, from former Al-Qaeda uh, to former white Aryan resistance, who've come out, they are successful. Many of them are in an organization that I serve on the board called Life After Hate, and we do have people that are able to offer counseling and tell people what it's really like. So. I think that message has to be pretty broad, but I think most importantly, it starts with people as they're very young. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Southers, and thank you for the work that you do in this field. It's Always a pleasure. I'm really honored to do it, and uh, there's no service like public service. Thank you. Special thanks to the USC Center on Public Diplomacy, specifically Lisa Rao, who made this possible, the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, and Caleb Trask, who provided our theme music, which comes from his EP, Across the Water. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Looking forward to bringing you the next episode, so stay tuned.